Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and in today's episode I've got an interview with Dr. Adam Staten um, all about burnout. So um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. I'm going to go straight into the thank yous this week and just to pass on my gratitude for the comments and then the engagement and those of you who are listening and getting involved I very much appreciate it. It's really wonderful. Uh, and um, I'm incredibly grateful when you get in touch and you let me know. Please do feel free to do so. Uh, as I've said, ad nauseum, I'm no longer on social media, but you can still email me. Um, feel free to ping me an email, blokeology at gmail.com or uh, Ewan at com. will get there as well. And I will certainly send you a reply. Um, another way to just stay in touch with the podcast and what's going on in terms of evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle is to sign up for the newsletter. Uh, you can do that at blokeology.io forward slash journal. Um, so a little bit more about today's episode. So um, Adam Staten, Adam is a GP like myself. Uh, he's down in the uh, sunny southern climes of uh, Milton Keynes, where he works as a general practitioner. But Adam and I co-edited a book on GP burnout. Um, was it last year? I think it may be actually just the end of the year before that, that it came out. But Adam's gone on and done some other book work as well. And he's just about to release, I think it has just been released, um, a book on a burnout for junior doctors and medical students. So um, it was a good chance for Adam and I to catch up and have a bit of a blether about burnout and sort of well-being and lifestyle in general. Um, if you go back to episode 24, I actually recorded an episode on my own all about burnout and my own personal experience and talking a little bit about that. Um, I don't, So I don't go too much into that in this episode. Um, we do... We do sort of range far and wide in our discussion, I guess. We talk a little bit about burnout, uh, the really important concept of decision latitude, which I think is really interesting in that kind of, you know, how much choice and control we have over our life and how burnout, it's not all about doctors. It happens to people in all sorts of walks of life. And as Adam is quick to point out, it's not even just about work. It's also about our personal lives and how it impinges in all sorts of other areas as well. So we certainly talk a little bit about the kind of measures we think um, can make a difference to help you reduce your chance of burnout, to help you if you are suffering a little. Um, so it's including areas like physical activity, mindfulness. And we do go on and talk quite a bit about, about uh, modern technology and digital minimalism, um, or at least I do. And um, I make no apology for this because I think it's an area that's really burning a bit of a hole in my brain at the moment, having given up social media. And I've been on an absolute tear reading books around this topic in the past few weeks. Um, having read Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, I've gone on and read Sherry Turkle's book about reclaiming conversation. I also mentioned Solitude by Michael Harris in the book. Um, I think The Shallows by Nicholas Carr as well. And I might mention a couple of others as well. I'm just increasingly thinking it's having a massive impact on how we live our lives, you know, our psychological well-being and just our health in general. And that's without getting into all the privacy concerns, the impact of living in little filter bubbles and what that's doing to our society and how we engage with other people and the rise of extremism as well. I'm not going anywhere near that. I'm just thinking about it from the health and lifestyle perspective at the moment. Um, but I certainly think it's applicable to burnout. And I've, I wonder if you know people know about physical activity and they know about getting sleep. 
and they know a little bit about mindfulness. Actually, I think it's possible to be a lot more mindful in your daily life by simply changing the way we interact with technology. And um, conversations I've been having about this recently, it's not just about giving up technology, it's just about using it slightly different. It's not inherently bad. Some of the way that some of the social media and things are structured at the moment, I think, is not good. Um, and some of the books I'm reading, there's one that I, I'm halfway through at the moment called Zucked, which is in the bestseller list. It's about actually humane technology um, that actually works with us and rem ensures that our digital technology remains a tool for us rather than um, something that is damaging us in some in various different ways. Um, so I won't, we'll, you'll hear a little bit more about that in the conversation. So we certainly go into that and how it's related to burnout. So um, the first thing I did though with Adam was just to get him to tell us a little bit more about what burnout is and how we might experience it. Okay, well, burnout is uh, it's quite, it's quite a common phenomenon, unfortunately, um, uh, you know, in all kind of work environments. Um, but uh, the, the sort of three main features of it are... Um, a sense of sort of mental and physical exhaustion. This phenomenon known as um, depersonalization, where you start um, sort of treating people in a very sort of callous and disinterested way, and a lack of um, job satisfaction or a feeling that you're not really achieving what you want to achieve in your job. Um, of those three, I think the main thing that most people relate to or it sort of typifies the syndrome is um, that sense of exhaustion, just feeling tired all the time. Burnout's been studied a lot in the medical healthcare professions. And perhaps mm. it's because, why, why do you think that is? Why do you, I mean, obviously it's because medics are looking into something which is medical, so it's handy to look at themselves. I, yeah. But I suspect we seem to have quite high rates of burnout in the medical profession and across healthcare professions, caring professions, perhaps I should extend it out to. Why do you yeah, think that yeah. is? Well, I think the, um, you know, one of the, the thing, the thing that leads to burnout really is being sort of um, psychologically overextended over a prolonged period of time. I think in, a, in any kind of caring profession, and, and you're right to say it's not just in medicine, it's in fact it's all, all walks of life, but particularly caring professions, so teaching, social work, healthcare, um, you're exposed to a lot of high emotion, um, you know, stressful situations where you are either feeling yourself, feeling stressed yourself or are exposed to other people's um, stress and fears and anxieties. And I think that is really leads you to being just that psychologically overextended feeling. Um, and if that goes on for too long, you know, and in your career you're talking months, years, potentially at a time, um, it just gradually, gradually leads to burnout and feeds into the problem really. Yeah. Well, um, so you've obviously just written, you've obviously been involved in a couple of books now to relate it to burnout. There was the one about GPs, which I was involved in, and now you've just got as at the time of recording, the the new one about for junior doctors is about yeah. to come out. Yeah, it's for junior doctors and medical students as well. In fact, yes, um, yes, of course. Yeah. And I, and not to be underestimated, there's a lot of bit. Sometimes I think you know, working in a medical school, I think there's a little bit of tutting goes on in the medical profession that medical students should, you know, for, mm. you know, they, they should dare to suggest that they're burnt <laughs> out. But yeah. it is it is it is the case, isn't it? That actually, you know, you need a particular you can understand it with junior doctors, but even down to medical students, they do suffer from the phenomenon of burnout. Yeah, and I think um, I, I mean, I think I think probably it's changing now. But that tutting went on throughout people's careers. You know, I think up until recently, it would be very frowned upon to to admit to being burnt out. And um, the um, the medical profession has always talked about detached concern so you're not really supposed to get emotionally involved with your patients but it's a it's a bit of a nonsense really because how is you know as a human being how is it possible not to be emotionally involved with these people that you're you're caring for but the the um 
um, the thing about the medical students being burnt out, I mean, it's quite it's quite worrying, really. And there is quite a lot of research showing that, that medical students are getting burnt out. Um, a lot of their burnout is, is perhaps related more to the sort of academic strain, the exams, the relentless sort of assessment. But also, you know, whilst they're going through all that, they are also seeing all the things on the wards or in the hospital, which to some extent, I suppose they don't they're not yet equipped to deal with properly. Um, and yeah, and it, and it is, and it is, um, it is something that's worrying because we've got we've got medical students feeling burnt out and dropping out from medicine before they've even treated a patient. So you know, if you look to that from a sort of economic societal perspective, it's quite worrying that we're investing money in people and we're not we're not training them properly um, to let them do the job that they you know, they want to do that we need them to do really. Um, so I mean, it's, it is it is it does sound slightly strange to think of these students being burnt out, but um, it seems to be a growing phenomenon really yeah i think one of the things i would like to say as well though is that we we're, we'll probably concentrate more about the medical profession that's because we're both gps and so it's natural for us to do that but you can get burned out in any walk of life and in any mm. job and it doesn't have to be some highfalutin corporate kind of chief exec higher management kind of role either I, my feeling is that burnout can happen to anybody in any job and it's no mm. it's not necessarily a marker of um it's not you know and perhaps some of those jobs which you might regard as you know uh, you know where you, people have less control you know whether you're working at mm. a checkout you know and yeah. actually or you've just got you know you're working in a kind of or you're working as a teaching assistant as you mentioned there there's still that mm. emotional intensity you might yeah. be relatively low down the hierarchical lad- ladder if you like in terms of having managers above you mm. well, we were talking just before we came on about lo- lack lack of control weren't we and that's like being yeah, so important to managing burnout yeah, I mean, and the, um, I mean, you know, to, to sort of illustrate your point, there's, there's quite high levels of burnout on people who work on production lines because they're in absolutely no control over what their workload is or how it comes to them, and and um, you know, from a from a burnout perspective, that's quite an unhealthy working environment. Um, in terms of being in control, it's it's not necessarily the workload, you know, the amount of work you have that is the problem. It's your capacity to make decisions about how you manage it. So it's something called decision latitude, um, sort of in the burnout literature which is where you can, um, you know, you can cope with an enormous workload as long as you can structure the way you deal with it yourself. Yeah. As soon as you have that power taken away, so if you're being micromanaged or you're working in a very bureaucratic environment that's very procedural driven, then, um, you know, your risk of burnout really escalates. Yeah. And the NHS, my perception of, so I've, I've recorded an episode and I can't remember which episode it was in the past about my own personal experience of burnout. And I have certainly had at least a couple of points in my life where I would easily tick their burnout boxes. Now, and it kind of, it's not like, you know, like any of these things, they're just, they fluctuate, don't they? Um, Yes. But I was particularly badly affected when I was in as a junior doctor in the NHS. And I think those kind of the bureaucracy that existed in the NHS, like working in an A&E department or as a, you know, as a SHO in medicine and coping with the kind of, problems with beds and you know kind of administrative kind of nonsense you had to go through they used yeah. to drive me up the wall well exactly. it, was, it's, it was all these things that were getting in the way you actually doing the job you wanted to do aren't they so it's um mm. you know and the, and the restrictive you know restricting you um performing properly really yeah um, you know, and that and that if you can't do your job properly then you lose the job satisfaction which is the other sort of you know third one of the three pillars of burnout is the uh you know losing that job satisfaction so it's yeah, as, as you say, the NHS is a huge bureaucratic machine. It's easy to get lost in it as a as a junior doctor or even a senior doctor. You know, um, 
and just just fi- find that you're you're just slogging through patients day after day without really getting any satisfaction from it. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. It's not an effect all grades. Actually, I was just speaking to a member of my family uh, uh, earlier in the week, and they um, had suggested they'd been away on a holiday with a consultant colleague who d- mm. described him, and he described himself as being institutionally bullied. And I think you mm. know, bullying is obviously a different thing. But I, I wonder if part of that was just this complete lack of control and managers, even at consultant level, pushing yeah. down targets and insisting he works certain patterns. And often, you know, they're quite demanding patterns with on call or weekends on nights or other things. Yeah. That's all. It's all the same. I think decision latitude is a really good concept, isn't it? To try to frame that for anybody who's going about trying to make changes to their life. Actually, if you can make changes which give you more decision latitude, then you're in a you, you're going to be in a stronger position. Yeah, and I'm I'm quite interested in you know burnout. We always talk about it really as an occupational thing, but um, that you know you can extend burnout really out into your wider life um, and see where where the stresses are in your life and where you lack decision latitude. And I think there's a lot of people who actually mm. are trapped in situations, you know, non-work related that, um, where they don't have the capability to, to make the change that they want to. Um, so really, I mean, when you're in that situation, it's quite important to identify what changes you can make or, or how you would think about making changes in the future. Because even working out a strategy to get to that point is quite psychologically beneficial. Yeah. Because that's a really interesting, I hadn't thought of it like that. I know you can sort of, there, there could be lots of different groups that that could apply to, like, you know, single mums, for example. Or if you've got, yeah. you, you've got, you've got childcare responsibilities, which you, you know, really massively affect your decision latitude. Um, yeah, I suppose exactly. lower income groups could be a factor, of, certainly vulnerable groups, like, and I, I suppose sort of physical health as well, that, like, you know, even like if you're trying to lose some weight and you're obese, that almost, yeah. that, you know, and you've, you, that becomes a problem in terms of affecting your decisions about what you can go and do in terms of improving that situation. Well, exactly. You know, you know, you need to make a change, but it's actually being able to implement those changes. That's the that's the difficulty. Yeah. But I think I think you know, you look right around society. There's lots of people trapped in different situations where um, they just can't make, you know, they don't, they can't make the changes they need to, even though they recognise there needs to be changes made. Yeah, yeah. So I should ask you what I mean. I've I I won't start rambling on about my experiences of burnout just at the moment. But what what, what when was the time do you think you've been affected, Adam? You got, what would be your worst point? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, I don't know. We were talking about this sort of off air when when we came when I came to write write the book about burnout. Actually, I was coming from the perspective of how do I avoid that happening to myself because I I was very positive about my career, um, but all around me, people were retiring early, leaving the country, leaving medicine, and I thought, well, you know, how why is that happening? How do we how do we stop it happening? But despite you know, despite having having done all the you know sort of the research on it read it and written written about it um certainly i would say sort of last year i recognized that i was taking on far too many things and um you know had all kinds of sort of deadlines and constraints around me whilst trying to do my day job and i think probably the lowest moment was um last last winter we had this horrendous flu season so my day job you know, as a gp was incredibly stressful and i just had a, a number of other things that i had fully willingly taken on myself um but it certainly got to a point where i thought actually i'm i'm not enjoying any of this um i'm performing worse in every aspect of my work because of it um and so i really had to sit down and say make some choices about which things i wanted to carry on and which ones i didn't and actually managed to carry on most of them by putting myself into a sort of timetable it's that sort of recognizing that i need to manage i need to manage my workload so i just literally sat down and paper and said right by the end of this month i need to have done that and that month i need to have done that 
and that made the whole thing feel much more manageable actually yeah just start facing up to it you're yeah, gonna, yeah, as well yeah. i think perhaps maybe it's a little bit of a recognition isn't it that actually i i think i mentioned this i can't remember if i mentioned this i wrote a i wrote a short i wrote a little blog post for um your website adamstaten.com yeah. i don't think i put this one in actually which was i um i think it was about recognizing as the best case fallacy which was i think yeah. put forward by roger scruton who is roger scruton the uh, well unscrupulous um, he's just been in the news again recently. Um, I, don't yeah. know if you, I don't know if you've seen, but um, I haven't spotted that. No, he, well, Roger Scruton. I'm I'm hesitant to even mention his name because he supported. He took money off the tobacco industry, I believe. Okay, yeah. And then actually, and then was prepared to write pieces depend, defending smoking. Yeah. But more recently, I think he's just been sacked from something. Though I think that's correct. So he's, he's a right character. charmer. But yeah, he, he yeah. came up with a best case fallacy, which was this whole idea that actually it won't happen to me. And it's not kind of about facing yeah. up to your, your kind of, you know, it's about the smoker who keeps on smoking because they assume that won't be, they, they won't be the one who gets lung cancer. Yeah. And I sometimes yeah. think burnout's a little bit like that, that actually we all plow on thinking, okay, I'm a bit stressed. I know I'm busy. It's the B word. The, I know yeah. I'm busy, but actually it won't happen to me. I won't be the one that burns out or has a disaster. Yeah, I think because you always think actually this is going to turn a corner. Suddenly, suddenly something's going to be something. Suddenly something's going to be better that makes it easier. Um, and really, that's not that's not going to happen necessarily, unless you unless you choose to make it happen or unless you make the changes that can that can happen. Yeah, it's that um, is that concept. Um, you know, I, I think you wrote about it in the book about this protective withdrawal, whereas you recognise as a problem, you just sort of bunker down and try and get through it without making any change. Um, and it's fine. I mean, that, that can get you through a short-term period of stress, but if the, mm. if the stress goes on, you know, for any prolonged period of time, then, it, then it's not going to be sort of adequate, really. Yeah, I think, and it's about recognising that if you're at that sort of, you're doing that, that protective withdrawal, but actually the things aren't changing and you're still just hunkered down mm. in your little foxhole in your bunker, and it's not, yeah. you know, things aren't improving. Um, then you got a problem. I, I mean, we're coming from a position of some privilege, I think. So I've got to be a bit careful because we're both in a position where we can make some changes, and yeah, our absolutely. kind of our roles yeah. and our profession give us that scope. Yeah. Um, so it's not always as easy, is it? So it's easy to say, just, you know, just make the change and there's a real danger. It comes across as super patronizing, but I think it's about recognizing that even small things can make a difference, but sometimes you've got to try to take some ownership if you, if it's within your ability. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a change, you know, you're quite right that, you know, lots of people are stuck in a sort of an occupational situation where, you know, basically this, this is the job they need to do for now to pay their bills, to, you know, pay their mortgage or whatever, whatever else it's need, they need the money for. But um, so in sometimes it's, it's it's about recognizing what you can do outside of work to to relieve the stress of being in work. But it's not an ideal situation, obviously, because you're not really addressing the underlying problem. But there are all kinds of things that we know make people more resilient to burnout. So physical fitness, spending time with friends and family, having hobbies that distract you. And um, so the big thing at the moment is, is all the mindfulness um, mm. literature and training and things that's, that's on at the moment. So yeah. I think, <clears throat> I think engaging in those sort of things it, it provides an outlet, um, a distraction from you. So you're not so you're not constantly thinking about work. If, you know, if nothing else, it's just a distraction. Yeah. So I th- we should talk a bit about those. I've got I've got a few ideas, and I'd like to to ask you about. But one thing I would like mm. to say before we talk about those is that there's a slight danger with burnout, and if you hear this in a lot of quarters that burnout is becomes a it becomes it has been more readily acknowledged in the medical profession amongst other and uh, in a, and, and lots of other areas as well but there's a slight risk that it puts it all on the individual which in many ways can worsen burnout and i know that the book covers 
you know, both the books cover the fact it, it, you can't just look at it at the individual level. You've also got to look at it from a wider perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, particularly um, when looking at something like the NHS, you need to look at it from an organizational perspective. I mean, the levels of burnout are so high that really you can't look at it as an individual problem. But um, as you say, if you say, well, you're burnt out, this is your problem, then that is putting the onus entirely on the individual. But there's a reason why you're burnt out, and it's usually the situation you find yourself in. Um, so in, in both of the burnout books, we talk quite a lot about um, organizational change and building, I suppose, um, resilience techniques, resilience um, um, resources into, into your daily working life. Um, and I think that's a lot really where the medical school and the medical student bit comes in is actually recognizing that you are about to embark on a career where a degree of burnout is probably inevitable at some point, because at some point you are going to be overstressed and you are going to be psychologically extended. Um, so a lot of medical schools, particularly in America, are now looking at building in things like burnout awareness and mindfulness programs into the medical curriculum. And it's equipping, it's equipping people going forward, but it's also a recognition that actually we all need to be aware of this and we need to recognize the problem of the system yeah i like to think that what will happen with that as well though is that if we teach it right at medical schools as well as giving the individuals and we can go on and talk a bit more about the individual things because i think they're really important but actually those individuals will then go out into those workplaces and go oh my goodness me this workplace is a horror story for burnout and actually we need to fix that system you know whether it's within our teams or whether it's in the wider organization or society at large you know there's talk about moving to a four-day working week as a kind of that's the kind of thing that maybe it's my guardian reading habits but actually you know there's there's some evidence yeah. i think it's the welcome trust have done a trial mm. that they they've put all their employee or they're going to do a trial can't remember which way round it is yeah. the, uh, they're going to do a trial of a four-day working week rather than a five-day working week and actually the evidence seems to suggest preliminary evidence that mm. people are more productive yes you, yeah you, i can well imagine it yeah. yeah you don't have to work five days nine till five that's completely arbitrary amount but actually if you do mm. the same amount of you know if you do the if you people can get through that work in four days and having a much more you know they have more free time and more leisure protects them that's a kind of a system level change Mm. that can have an enormous impact well it's similar to saying to people actually this is the work you need to complete when you're finished go home rather than saying you're here nine till five twiddle your thumbs till five even if you finish your work, it's the, you know, it's those kind of things. Yeah. 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 Just surf through yeah. Facebook until five, yeah, the, the, exactly. the bell hits five. So yeah, so yeah the result orientated work environment row, I think they call it, don't they? And there's, a, and there's mm. really good evidence for that. And a lot of, you know, sort of more progressive companies are going down that route. And, yeah. um, and I think as a working at a university from the academic side, that's pretty much what we get is a result orientated works and env- work environment. You will, yeah. there's a, there's a considerable degree of freedom. As long as you're producing the output, no one's yeah. too anxious about what point of the day you choose to do that work. There are certain fixed things, of course, when it comes to teaching and assessment yeah. and other things, but I feel really bad because I look at the admin staff at somewhere like the medical school and they, they get hammered with the nine to five approach. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's very, bit, um, there's a very big, unequal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very yeah. different. Uh, and the danger is we we spin through those admin staff. They get, kind of they get they come through. They get a bit burned out. They move on, and actually mm. that's incredibly bad for the um, organisation as well because you know you need people that are you know with experience and are invested over a period of years. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So um, let's so are we so one of the things I um the individual uh, aspects of things. We let's talk a little bit about mindfulness. Um, mm. Lots of evidence. How much do you cover a little bit more about that in the book in terms of the evidence for? um how people can use it what works what doesn't yeah i mean it's 
you know, mindfulness is sort of, um, I think there's a quote, but there's a lady called uh, Dr. Fiona Day, who's um, a sort of coach, really, um, for doctors. But she's, she's, she's very expert at mindfulness and coaching, teaching mindfulness and, and that sort of thing. But um, she used an expression, mindfulness is everywhere but nowhere at the moment. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all over the place. You know, it, it, people are always talking about it, but, um, but in very little detail. And um, actually, the evidence base for it is, is still emerging, really. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a drug, so so big pharma and things aren't necessarily interested in investing in it. And so the so the big scale trials aren't aren't necessarily there. But certainly, when looking at the, there are lots of mindfulness interventions that have been tried in doctors and GPs and things that that have shown benefit. And some of these are so sort of mind blowingly low level. Like there there was one paper that showed that just standing still for thirty seconds and thinking about nothing improved levels of burnout. So mindfulness. <laughs> Techniques can be incredibly basic, but quite effective. Um, and I think, um, you know, and it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert in mindfulness myself, but, um, you know, and there are numerous courses out there that people can take. And I think the basic course is sort of six to eight weeks long, but, um, but there are loads of apps out, um, at the moment that will just help you do simple, simple techniques. Um, I know the big one at the moment is sort of a headspace where, where there's a guy that will, that will gradually coach you through mindfulness and they're, they're really simple sort of thing. You spend 10 minutes just trying to clear your mind and actually will equip you better to deal with the stresses of your day, really. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've read, a, there's a few books around that I would recommend to people. Like the Ruby Wax one on mindfulness is really quite good, which goes into some of the science and also some of the um, practical techniques. So that's a really accessible book. Ruby Wax, not being the obvious person no. that you would think of, but actually, I think she's done a master's in mindfulness or kind of related cognitive sort of therapies. Mm. as well and is um she's a smart cookie and it's a really good book and yeah. the book if you want to delve in more into the evidence the book that i'm just about to finish reading at the moment is called the science of meditation mm. so there's that kind of and it, there's an interesting spectrum there because they talk about level five to level one and level five being the kind of like the full-on you know eastern med eastern kind of oriental meditation kind yeah. of yogis and gurus and monks who spend days and days meditating Level Ooh. four is like that without perhaps the kind of the religious elements and all the way down to level one, which is probably like your 30 seconds of standing, you know, standing, thinking yeah, yeah. about nothing in particular. Yeah, that might be level zero. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but the, um, the interesting thing is there seems to be quite a lot of emerging evidence about the problem with this is it's a kind of proxy markers. There's evidence that it's actually um, changing brain structures. They're seeing, you know, they're doing a lot of functional MRIs and they're seeing actual people who do like meditated meditation programs and they're seeing changes in certain structures in the brain that yeah. I, as we're well known and sort of from the medical side of things is all well and good, but you'd really want to see some slightly better outcome data, don't you? Because it's all well and good at changing the brain, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to result in you something nicer happening to you in real life. No, no. And I think, um, I mean, I think that evidence will come. I think it probably is, is coming, but the, essentially it's in it's an incredibly cheap intervention so if we mm. could if we could get people doing it we'd probably save a lot of money on other other forms of therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy or even medication which is you know the other resources we've got at our disposal so um i think at some point someone someone will invest the, the amount of, you know the money needed to to do the proper trials and and get it get it get it done but anecdotally and you know and what evidence there is is very um so positive really 
it's changed a lot in the last 10 years, I think, hasn't it? From being mm. very much very fringe activity and slightly on the complementary medicine woo side to being yeah. much more accepted that there is some decent evidence here. And we've always got to be a bit careful about that phrase emerging evidence because they like to use that in the complementary medicine field. Which for uh. some, because there's a, there's, a, there's a danger that there's an implicit assumption about which way that evidence is going to go. You know, we're yes. just we're yeah. developing the evidence to prove that mindfulness works. It goes, well, actually, no, you should just be developing the evidence base for med- mindfulness to find out if it does anything. It's yeah, not, yeah, rather yeah. making an assumption. But I think yeah. it's, it's a little bit like that with mindfulness, isn't it? Because the evidence that is out there does look to be so positive that yes. actually everyone's very, I think everyone's, gosh, there's been a massive band mindfulness mm. bandwagon. Well, I think, you know, if, if my, my take on mindfulness, my sort of very basic take on it is it's just about taking some time to slow down and switch off, and um, which is difficult to do at the moment. You know, t- step, step outside sort of your, how busy your job is or your family life, whatever, but having your smartphone in your pocket, social media feed continually going, you know, it's very easy just to spend your whole time with your mind completely whirring, going all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it, mindfulness emerges basically as a, as an antidote to that really. So oh, well, that's like the perfect segue, Adam, because I'm now uh, going, because <laughs> I've just been itching because I can't stop boring people about digital minimalism these days. Yeah, and, yeah. and every time I speak to anybody, I'm just like, I steer the conversation around to it. So it's inevitable that I have to talk on the podcast about it. I'm becoming a little yeah. bit evangelical that um, I, and as you know, we mentioned before we came on, I've, I've deleted my Twitter feed, deleted my Twitter account. I've deleted my Facebook account. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on any mm. social media. I mean, obviously I've got a podcast, so I can't. I'm not claiming to be a digital, you know, I'm I'm not a Luddite in that regard. Yeah, I've got yeah. a blog. But um, I have made a massive effort to switch off. I, I, don't, I think this is something you probably haven't covered in the book. But is there any, have you done anything around that about terms of digital, the influence of um, the kind of that modern modern digital social media or anything like that? Not not really in the way you're describing. We've talked about um, how actually the negative effect of of media, you know, media on social media can can affect you as a you know psychologically and, and your constant exposure to that can be quite damaging mm. um we have talked a little bit about how you can use that then to your advantage i mean certainly if you look back to you know a few years ago when the junior doctors were striking they use social media very effectively to to sort of combat the negative portrayal that was given in the mainstream media but so um but in terms of sort of cleansing yourself of um or the digital world. No, we haven't really covered that. No, no, no. And I, I, I wouldn't expect you to because I think it's a very emerging. Uh, we use that word again, but yeah, yeah you know, people <laughs> are only just. People, it's only people. I think this is just something that's bubbling up and is going to become yeah. massive in the next few years about the kind of potential negative impacts of um, social media and the digital always switched on world on our health. So I think mm. this is going to be huge. And my personal experience in the last couple of months is that I have, I already feel that I am getting significantly, I, I do feel there is benefit there mm. that, in that actually I'm now going through periods where I, do, I just, I just have nothing to look at my phone for. So I don't look at it. You know, that yeah. constant checking and the average number of times that someone checks their phone per day is, you know, dozens or hundreds or whatever it is it's it's yeah. staggering and i've real i realized that you just do it in the first few weeks you realize you just do it as an absolute reflex you don't even mm-hmm. there's no thinking yeah, of course yeah you just look at your phone but actually once you've done that once you've not had any social media for a couple of three weeks actually you suddenly realize there's no point looking at your phone because there's not going to be anything there so you no. stop doing it and yeah. even even things like going for like now at lunch, like yesterday lunch, I went out for a walk for half an hour from lunch just around the campus and I left my phone in the office. It's like a radical step. I didn't <laughs> yeah. actually take my phone with me. I, no one could get me for half an hour. And it, it was just lovely. 
Yeah, I must admit, I started doing the thing. If I go on if I go away on holiday, I will just turn my phone off and lock it in the hotel safe. Yeah. Um, because other you know, otherwise, I can check my work email. I can check yeah. social media feed. It's, it's just all all the stuff that I'm trying to leave behind is is there in my pocket if I if I want it to be. Yeah, so I've deleted all that stuff off my phone. I've got no. There's no. I've got. I I can't get to my Google Mail gmail can't get to my work email there's yeah. nothing on there at all i've got like reading stuff and podcasts listening for listening to podcasts and then there are various apps you have to have like you know to pay for your car parking and yeah. you know other bits and pieces um but i'm trying to be i think it leads into something we were talking about about hobbies and actually i wonder if that's a really in terms of burnout i know it seems slightly peripheral but i do mm. sort of think that actually that is one of the great things that is dying off in our modern culture uh, is yeah. hobbies and yeah. there might be people talking about things on the internet, but actually just doing things which are non-digital, which are analog, is an enormously useful protective. My feeling sense is it's an enormously useful protective mechanism. Yeah, I couldn't agree with them more. And in some ways, I, I think the the hobby, you know, for me, for example, you know, I'll, I'll go to the gym or I'll play my guitar a bit. But these are I, effectively, I was thinking about this the other day. They're effectively mindfulness techniques because I sit there yeah. and I'm just focused on on one thing to the exclusion of everything else, and they just relax me. Um, and as you said, just shutting off everything else in the outside world. And I, I think, I think the value of a hobby is is massively under, underestimated, really. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to give up the internet because you know, like for instance, there are some wonderful resources for playing the guitar on the internet, aren't they? In terms of yeah, learning absolutely. and you yeah. know how to do it. Um, but and I've just actually taken up drawing. So in the evenings when I'm sitting around do a bit of pen and ink drawing, I'm colorblind, as I've always tell people. So, <laughs> so <laughs> um. And I'm just doing a bit of pen and ink drawing, sketching, and like, and I'm following a book. But also, there are yeah. some wonderful resources on the internet for that as well. But that's an amazing difference. And I'm, you bec- I'm becoming hyper aware about the people that are spend their evenings sitting looking at their phone or tablets mm. or in a digital world. And it's yeah. funny how even sitting on a train or out in public now that I'm just increasingly looking with horror at the way people are, <laughs> um, are not engaged yeah. with the world. Yeah, yeah. I think Simon Sharma referred to sort of. Uh, I guess it's probably our generation and the generation below is the look down generation because everybody's <laughs> yeah. spending their time looking down at their phones all the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably too old, I think, actually, because I do no, remember I'm like, the, um, I've kind of, there was, I'm just reading a book called um, The Shallows at the moment, which is about how the internet is basically turning our brains into porridge. Um, yeah. And um, I'm very much of that. He's, I think he talks about people who had an analog childhood and then a digital smartphone adulthood. And I'm yeah. pretty, pretty much th- at that stage that I, there was nothing of this when I was below the age of mm. 18, 20. And yeah. it all came through after that. Well, I must admit, I certainly see in my sort of day job as GP, lots of very unhappy teenagers. Mm. And a lot of the source of their sort of angst seems to be from social media and the internet. And they, you know, they, a lot of the social media platforms they're using, I, I've never even heard of. You know, they're so, it, the world is evolving so quickly that it's very difficult to keep up with. Um, yeah, and I think um, I think it's I think it's a huge issue actually. There's um, one of the things that um, we talk about burnout, but just general well-being and mental health is. Mm. I think that having that time to yourself is like one of the books I read just recently. Talking about a lot of books I read, but I was away on holiday last week, and because I had no internet to look at, I read about five books in a week. That in itself was wonderful. Actually, yes, the ability, yeah. just focusing on like you know books for like a week and reading and reading in depth was something that even last year I wouldn't have done because I'd have mm. been checking stuff up constantly. But yeah. Anyway, I looked at this book called Solitude, um, and that is very much by a guy called Michael Harris. And that very much is uh, teenagers. I think are massively affected by this. That actually you never have a period of time where you're not connected in some way. 
Mm. And that connections, those yeah. okay, those connections are quite low fidelity. They're quite low quality. But you're never yeah. just in your own head. You're not allowed to be bored yeah. anymore. And no, no, exactly. You're, 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 if you're bored, you pick up your phone and you do something, and you're always stimulated. But actually, that whole quality of solitude is actually incredibly important for your well-being. And I think for burnout, that actually having a chance to reflect and you know just be alone with your thoughts, and that's that kind of thirty seconds of standing still. Actually, yeah. thirty seconds of not having shit in your head <laughs> yeah <laughs> frankly it's probably yeah. like a mass that's a massive step forward and although we were kind yeah. of laughing about it actually yeah. you know most people wouldn't go 30 seconds without no, no. Uh, before they looked at their phone they couldn't stop themselves and that whole no. it was a massive argument for sort of the benefits of solitude and mm. actually having time alone with your thoughts and um actually ironically as paradoxically as a um it actually um benefits uh loneliness so um yeah there's kind of I, I think there are a lot of sort of inter factors playing here and the, that digital thing is huge and for teenagers in particular mm. yes um, yeah and, and i think we we don't you know we don't understand really what's going on as i say things have changed so quickly you know you say even in the last well i would say like, i was gonna say last 20 years but even the last 10 years really things have things you know the way people lead their lives has changed so much that we've not really kept up with it and i think we don't really understand what it's doing to us yet no um, i think that's right i think that's why i think it's going to be massive um yeah. i think you're absolutely right that we just don't know what's going to what's going to happen in terms of th those effects and um, how they're going to play out it's really um it's going to be challenging i, I think it's a real challenge this is a slight aside but i think it's a real challenge for doctors and in fact, mm. i wrote a column in the for the b for the journal last month where i mentioned that that i think one of the things we're going to have to start introducing is a digital history as part of our social history yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think it's probably it's probably right, really. And um, the difficulty is going to be for us in understanding what they're telling us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think there'll be resistance to it as well for that reason. I think you know a lot of GPs yeah. will go, "Well, that's not you know." Yeah. I think people won't be keen on it in the slightest. All right, so cool. So, um, any other sort of areas around this? What any other recommendations of physical activity? We've sort of covered on the podcast in the past, and I, yeah. we should we should certainly give a nod to it because it's just such a. If there's a panacea for burnout, it might yes. be up there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's actually evidence that if you do three months of an exercise program, that's as effective to cure depression as an antidepressant. So, I mean, it's the power of it is is massive. Um, and I, you know, I know you're a big advocate for it, and I'm a big advocate for it. I tell all my patients to try and get more exercise when they're feeling depressed, anxious, or or burnt out. Um, but I mean, I think I think if exercise isn't your thing, then then choose something else. You know, as you say, is it, is it art? Is it music? Is it films you know something that's going to that you can immerse yourself in and distract yourself with and just spend some time thinking about something other than the things that are stressful in your life really yeah yeah i i think that's absolutely you know essential i would i think that we, we have to be careful to draw the difference between exercise and physical activity because i know mm. that you're quite uh, you know you're a keen you know do lots of exercise gym what have you obviously mm. very fit um but physical activity can just be just walking can't it it's just that kind of even just a little bit of a brisk walk is better than a poke in the eye with a pointy stick as my <laughs> yeah, granny yeah. would say yeah yeah exactly yeah so i say exercise is probably um too loose a term really. as you say it's just building in you know that half hour spent walking at lunchtime for example is is the perfect sort of example or, or can you can you walk to work rather than catch the bus can you um i don't know just spend more time outside at the weekend it's 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 about it's about being active rather than, I suppose, flogging yourself in the gym. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, there's a slight, there's a bit, it's a bit of semantics to do with research when they call exercise and physical activity. But there's a slight danger that people, you say, get more exercise, and they think that does mean, you know, I'm I'm not a runner, and actually, yeah. it can, it's just so different to that. It's very different to that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Any other suggestions? Sleep, I suppose. Sleep. Is one to... Yeah, so <clears throat> sleep. I mean, the um, you know the benefits of, of a good night's sleep on on your ability to cope with what's ahead of you is um, you know sort of it, it, we all sort of naturally understand that. And I think um, again, without wanting to bang on about the digital stuff, but <laughs> I think again that's very that's very damaging to sleep as well. We know that exposure to the blue screen, so your tablets, smartphones, TVs, computers in the hour or two before bedtime, is likely to disrupt your your sleeping pattern. Um, so, I mean, the thing, you know, things we often talk about is you know, sleep hygiene, which is about having a good routine of winding down and avoiding the things that are going to disturb your sleep before you go to bed. Um, and again, I think, I think there's a lot of um, interest now in, in the value of good quality sleep and actually how little good quality sleep most of us get. Yeah. Um, gosh, it certainly seems to be the case. I'm, I'm, I'm a mega advocate for sleep and just get you know mm. i get if i don't get eight nine ten hours i'm <laughs> useless and yeah. that's what i do get I, I do normally get that um the, the blue screen thing's interesting because i'm not sure how much evidence there is for that blue screen thing and i do oh, wonder yeah. sometimes if it's the stimulation of being online rather than the screen yeah. i wonder if they've sat people just in front of blue screens which have got nothing on them but in mm. many ways it's that kind of brain worrying social connection flicking across yeah. web pages thing whether they've actually disentangled that i've never ever seen a study which has tried to disentangle the two no no i must admit i haven't either but i know for example that you're you know if you sat, sat watching the tv as opposed to reading a book yeah it's you know it's more harmful to your sleep i suppose but yeah. um yeah i think that's definitely something to watch and there, there's an amazing number of people that just you know go to bed with their phones Mm. um yeah which i just which boggles my brain to be honest yeah <laughs> um, yes yeah, yes mine too <laughs> okay cool so adam we should find out a little bit more about where we can where you should tell us a little bit more about where we can find out about you and uh, your book and where do you live and uh, having said all this bad stuff about the digital world uh, yes. i want to be clear that it's you know used intentionally it sort of still remains a wonderful wonderful resource <laughs> and one yes, of the wonderful things yeah. you can find is where can we find you um, so you can find me on um, uh, www.adamstaten.com um, and I'm on Twitter at, at Adam Staten and you can find me physically in Milton Keynes where I work as a general practice, uh, sorry, a GP. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, that's perfect. Adam, that has been wonderful. Thank you very much. Great. All right. Cheers, Ian. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Thanks again.